Look, I just want to say, for the record, that I don't think that hating puppets or Muppets makes you inherently evil, okay? How am I the only one who hates Muppets? Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer YouTube series and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Get It Done, the 15th episode of Season 7. Get It Done aired on February 18th, 2003, and was written by Doug Petrie, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was also directed by Doug Petrie. Petrie is known for his writing and hasn't directed much television, but he's directed two more episodes for Buffy, both in season six, Flooded and As You Were. Doug Petrie has written 17 episodes of Buffy. This is his penultimate script. We'll see his last script in End of Days. Some of my favorite stories in Buffy were written by Petrie, and even if he'd never written anything else, I would have always adored him for giving us Fool for Love, which is in my all-time top 10 of Buffy episodes ever. I'm going to be sad to say goodbye, but at least we don't have to do that just yet. All right, let's go on patrol. Yes, it took me that long to finally realize that In the Weeds wasn't on theme. In Get It Done, we open with Buffy's dream as she's looking after all the girls asleep in her house. Right as she's about to talk to a crying Chloe, she gets tackled by the first Slayer and receives this ominous message. It's not enough. After passing on his mother's emergency kit to Buffy at school, Robin Wood comes by to get the grand tour of Slayer Central. We've got a bunch of fighters with nothing to hit. A wicca who won't, and the brains of our operation wears out immense. But mostly, he's interested in the vampire in the basement. Show me the vampire. Spike and Anya go out for a nice evening of lots of drinking and no potentials, but when a demon hitman sent by DeHoffrin attacks, Spike chooses to run instead of finish the fight. Yeah. Anya, think. I fight, demon boy gets lucky, I get knocked out, you get killed. After discovering that the first got to Chloe, who responded by hanging herself in the bathroom, Buffy comes down on the group hard. She challenges the girls, Willow and Spike, and then makes a decision. I'm declaring an emergency. The emergency kit consists of a shadow carousel that opens a portal. Buffy dives in and a demon is swapped in her place. After getting thrown through the ceiling by the demon, Spike goes to the high school basement to retrieve a part of his old Yo. self. Nice coat. Where'd you get it? New York. While Willow tries to figure out how to reopen the portal, Buffy is in the Shadow World, and she meets the men who created the first Slayer. They offer her more power, but at a cost that Buffy refuses to pay. You think I came all this way to get knocked up by some demon dust? Spike kills the demon, Willow reopens the portal, and the trade is made again. But when Buffy has time to reflect on what the Shadow Men showed her, she starts to regret her decision not to take the extra power. Yeah. From the beginning, we are told that into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world chosen to fight vampires, demons, and the forces of darkness. She is the slayer. These are the rules. This is the status quo of the world of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It took us seven years to seriously question how incredibly fucked up that is. Joss Whedon has said that Buffy came from the trope of the pretty blonde who always gets killed in the monster films. What if she was strong? What if she fought back? What if she was the thing the monsters feared? And from that idea 
came Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But once you look at the world building behind Buffy, it's disturbing. All these demons, vampires, all that darkness, and one young girl to fight them? One young girl who dies a brutal and early death only so another can rise, like tissues from a box used and thrown away? Essentially disposable. Buffy was 15 when she was chosen. 15! And from the start of the TV series, when she's 16, she has been, to varying degrees, taking orders from her male watchers and the predominantly male watchers' council, which pays the men who make decisions about the Slayer, but doesn't compensate the Slayers or their grieving families. And here we discover that the way the first Slayer was made was by being raped by darkness itself, traumatized, and then sent out into the world to battle dark forces that are also predominantly male. Now, when you look at this as an analog for a patriarchal society that routinely disempowers women and pits them against impossible standards of beauty and behavior that make them blame themselves when they fail to measure up, all the while telling them to sit down, shut up, be nice, and get on their knees, well, shit lines up. These men pull in a disposable young girl to fight for them, then sit back and critique her form, her decisions, and her abilities. If she makes it to 18, they take away her powers and put her in a death chamber with some monster. And if she makes it through that harrowing ritual, she will eventually die from her impossible circumstance, and another disposable young girl will be brought in to take her place. It's a disgusting system. It's horrifying. We've questioned that system in bits and pieces throughout the run of Buffy. And in season five, we get the glorious Checkpoint, an episode that Doug Petrie co-wrote with the luminous Jane Espenson, where Buffy reclaims her power and tells the Watchers Council how it's going to be. You're Watchers. Without a Slayer, you're pretty much just watching Masterpiece Theater. She's 20 at that point. They would have had her dead at 18. I wonder if there's a connection there. Make sure she dies before she realizes what weak, pitiful bastards we are, boys. We'll just replace her with another one. In this episode, we see a Buffy who is strong enough to deny this patriarchal system its power over her. But even then, she is led to question whether she made the right decision, given that the battle that she has to face is so daunting. Because here she is, a woman in an impossible situation. Submit, or not only will you die, but everyone else will too. But Buffy didn't submit. She didn't give in. And that, my friends, fucking matters. You think I came all this way to get knocked up by some demon dust? I can't fight this. I know that now. But you guys, you're just men. Just the men who did this. To her. Whoever that girl was before she was the first slayer. Wait, 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 for how? No, you don't understand. You violated that girl. Made her kill for you because you're weak, you're pathetic, and you obviously have nothing to show me. Buffy is not an ideal feminist text. While we do have one girl in all the world, we also have her at the mercy of a patriarchal system which isn't questioned at all until Helpless in season three, and never seriously challenged until season five. We have a problematic character in Xander who benefits from a boys-will-be-boys protective bubble that prevents consequences for his sexual entitlement and degrading behavior toward the women in his life. There are reasons why people argue, and argue righteously, against the idea of Buffy being heralded as a grand feminist text. All right. I concede those points, but then I lay before you this episode, in which a text which has clearly demonstrated patriarchal blind spots allows its main character to say no, to resist, to not allow herself to be subjugated by men, to not play their game their way anymore. Buffy is a text that started out in a confusing space between sleep and waking, but woke up along the way. 
And while we haven't seen the last of the worst of that pre-waking state, I will argue that what we get in Buffy may not be ideal, but it is honest. It is us. The stories in our culture reflect us back at ourselves. And when one of those stories wakes up in mid-telling and says, hey, hang on a fucking minute, that's not ideal. That's illustrative. That shows us how to turn around on ourselves and say, hey, hang on a fucking minute. Buffy may be an imperfect feminist text, but it is a text that managed to live and grow and question itself the way that all of us who want to live good and meaningful lives must as we move through the world. It shows us how to be both imperfect and striving for better, even while continuing to fail. I don't need Buffy to be perfect, but I damn well sure needed this, and I'm grateful that I got it. Is that what you are? A good guy? I haven't heard any complaints. Well, I have heard a few complaints over the years, but then they just killed whoever spoke up, and that was pretty much that. He's joking. No, he's not. No, I'm not. Like most of the stories in Get It Done, Spikes is one of identity, being pulled in two directions, wanting to be one thing, but actually being something else. Since getting his soul back, Spike's been tormented by the man he is versus the man he wants to be. And it's all been about Buffy. I did this for you. The soul, the changes, it's what you wanted. What I want is the spike that's dangerous. The spike that tried to kill me when we met. Oh, you don't know how close you are to bringing him out. I'm nowhere near him. Spike is a complicated character. We've seen him pre-transition as a romantic mama's boy, bullied by others, rejected by the object of his desire, vulnerable to absolutely everything, and too weak, both in person and in character, to fight back or stand up for himself. Upon being turned by Drusilla, he's still romantic, but his power becomes his passion. He relishes the fight, the violence, and he will step into any battle just for the blood. He has no aversion to risk. He loves being the underdog in a scrap. He doesn't overthink things. He follows the blood where it leads him. From the moment he's chipped in season four, we see him in battle with himself, wanting that violence and discovering a new renaissance of self when he realizes he can still be violent, as long as he's fighting demons. But from this point forward, there's a split within him. He's not good, but fighting on the side of good makes that a problem for him, an internal division which only escalates when he falls in love with Buffy. After getting his soul, he's been tormented by this division. Instead of integrating into one man, he remains still split into two, a vampire with a soul, possessing a natural thirst for blood, and now a moral aversion to the violence that provides it. A monster on a leash, unable to allow his true nature, whatever that is at this point, free reign. In this episode, when he runs from the fight to protect Anya, we see him at his most not spike, afraid to fight, afraid to risk. And what does it take for him to get himself properly integrated again, to accept himself for both what he was and what he is? The leather duster he took off the body of a dead slayer. Like a superhero, he dons a costume and fully realizes his self, complete, both ensouled and violent, both light and dark, both good and monstrous. And while he does this for Buffy, to get the demon that will be passed through the portal in a trade to get Buffy back, it is also something he does for himself. He's done apologizing for what he is and ready to just be that thing with all its contradictions and its complications. It's beautifully done. I, I think I might pee my pants. You can do it. The magic's not the best thing. Okay. All right, let's start out this segment with the boring but obligatory ugh, 
Kennedy's terrible. I don't need to go into the reasons. You watch the show. You know. I am still waiting for her redemption. I remember her getting less odious as we went. We'll see. But right now, what I want to talk about is Willow. Alongside Spike's integration of self, we have this background story with Willow, and I find it inherently less satisfying than Spike's story, because we're still showing the power overtaking Willow instead of her grabbing it and making it her bitch, which is what really needs to happen. Since Willow's magic-as-drugs addict storyline leading her into her dark turn at the end of season six, she's been understandably tentative about her power, and that's okay. I like this idea that she's resisting herself and her power even as she realizes that she has to control that power, not run from it. But every time we have her using her magic this season, she isn't controlling it. She's overtaken by it. It controls her, not the other way around. In Bring on the Night, when Willow does a spell to try to locate the first, it overtakes her, possesses her. She is not in control. And we have that again this time when she pulls on the life forces of both Anya and Kennedy to create the portal. Her eyes go black. She's not in control anymore. And later, she's apologetic about it. It's important that you know what I am, what I'm like when I'm like that. I thought it would be, I don't know, cool somehow. It just hurt. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's just you were the most powerful person nearby. And well, that's, that's how it works. How I work. Set against the backdrop of Spike's unapologetic reclaiming of his power and Buffy's rejection of power at too high a cost, I find Willow's lack of a control arc here, her lack of a desire to do magic and use the power that is such an essential part of her identity, kind of lackluster. Instead of allowing Willow to come into her power, we have her acting afraid and hesitant and uninterested in it. If the world didn't need saving, we can believe that this Willow would gladly just go about her business, never picking up a crystal or a vial of sand ever again. Willow isn't active in her own integration of self. She's simply riding along on a track with no agency. And it's disappointing. I did like seeing Kennedy get knocked down, though. That was nice. All right, that's it for today. But before I go, I want to let y'all know that I was a guest on the wonderful Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast last week talking about Doppelgangland. If for some reason you haven't yet gotten into Buffering, let me tell you this. You are missing out. Kristen Russo and Jenny Owen Youngs are two of the most delightful people I've ever had the good fortune to speak to. And the music they create is amazing. I had such a great time talking to them, and I hope I get the chance to do it again soon. All right, this episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Chipperish Media Producer at Joshua Willis. Joshua supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show he wants. Thank you, Joshua, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Pretty producer. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 16, Storyteller. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.